God's eternal plan is to glorify his son and himself through the death and exaltation of Jesus. Jesus glorified his father by giving eternal life to everyone whom the father chose and gave to him. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to John 17, John 17. We're in a study in the Gospel of John since, uh, I think, November. We're now in the last week of Jesus' life, just before his crucifixion. It's Thursday night. As a matter of fact, it's been Thursday night since John 13. So 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all take place in a period of hours. Uh, They're in the upper room. Uh, Jesus has uh, washed their feet, as you recall, served them the... Passover meal instituted the Lord's Supper. John 13 through 16 records Jesus' final words to his disciples. It's often called the farewell discourse or the upper room uh, discourse. So if you look at these chapters, chapters 13 and 14 take place inside the upper room. And at the end of chapter 14, they leave and they begin to walk through the streets of Jerusalem toward the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus already knows that Judas is going to Uh, be there bringing a group of armed officers from the temple and the Romans and arrest him. So chapters 15, 16, and 17 take place on the way to um, Garden of Gethsemane on the side of the Mount of Olives, and it's probably a walking commentary or a walking uh, discourse. Jesus knows he has a date uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, which Lord willing will deal with in the next month or two. So he knows he's going to die, he's going to rise again, he's going to ascend to heaven, he's going to leave the disciples and go into the presence of his father where he came from in the first place. And they are very anxious, very nervous, very upset, and so Jesus gives them huge numbers of promises in chapters 14, 15. He tells them, 16, he tells them, I'll never leave you, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'm going to give you the promise of all promises, which is God himself in the presence of the Holy Spirit is going to live in you personally, permanently, forever. You will never be separated from God through him. Now in chapter 17, Jesus prays a public prayer in front of them, and he asks the Father to make all those promises come true in their lives, that he would implement the promises that he has made. Now, John 17 is unique of all the chapters in the Bible. It is a precious, priceless record of Jesus' intimate conversation with his heavenly Father. So the Holy Spirit inspired John to record this so that we could eavesdrop, literally, on the most holy of all conversations between God the Son and God the Father in heaven. The relationship between the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is infinite, eternal, and almost 100% inaccessible to us. We really don't know because God has revealed very, very little to us about that relationship 
But here in John 17, the Holy Spirit's pulled back the curtain in 26 verses and gives us a little glimpse. And it's profound. In the 5th century, Clement of Alexander said in this prayer that Jesus is acting like a high priest on behalf of his people. A priest, as you know, is a mediator. It's a go-between. And ever since, many in the church have called this Jesus' high priestly prayer because it involves a great deal of prayer on behalf of others, mostly us, mostly his disciples, his followers. Uh, John Knox on his deathbed, John Knox was a great Scottish reformer, he asked his wife to read the passage, quote, where I first cast my anchor of faith, which was John 17. The Holy Spirit used this chapter to bring John Knox to faith. And uh, he had this prayer read to him every single day until the day of his death. On his final deathbed, his wife read this passage to him every single day. Philip Melanchthon, he was a colleague of Martin Luther's, and he was a very well-respected theologian in his own right. His very last lecture was on John 17, and he said, quote, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. So this prayer takes place immediately after Jesus' discourse in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. At the end of chapter 16, if you look at verse 33, his last words are, I have overcome the world, which is a shout of triumph. He's going to overcome the world at the cross, as you know, in his resurrection and ascension. And the very next words, he just seamlessly moves into vertical prayer with his heavenly Father in heaven. It somewhat begs the question, if Jesus is, in fact, God in human flesh, which he is, and he is the second member of the Trinity, co-equal with God, co-eternal with God, identical in nature with the Father and the Holy Spirit, why does he need to pray? I mean, you know, you would assume that all three members of the Trinity know everything already. So why does Jesus need to intercede with his heavenly Father if, in fact, he's God? Remember that when Jesus came to earth, he took on human flesh and all the limitations of human flesh. He is fully God, and he stayed fully God from eternity past into eternity future. That never changed. But when he was born as a baby, he took on human flesh. He took on full humanity in addition to his perfect deity. So Jesus is the only, only person in the universe that has two natures. We follow that somewhat. We have the nature of God as well. But Jesus has two natures. He's theanthropic. Now, that's a fancy word. Theos means God. A good friend of mine, they named their grandson Theos. I'm going, do you realize what this kid's got to live up to? You know, they're going to expect him to walk on water and all sorts of stuff, you know. But anyway, his name is Theos. Anthropos means man. You know, anthropology, the study of man. Theology, the study of God. So, theanthropic means God-man. Fully God and fully man simultaneously. Jesus is the only complete and full God and fully man simultaneously at the same time. And he is in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father in his resurrected, glorified body. So Philippians 2 tells us that when Jesus came to earth from heaven and took on humanity, it says he emptied himself, the kenosis, he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself as of a divine nature. 
he laid aside the divine privileges he had in heaven. So now when he came to earth, he lived within the limitations of a human body. Jesus got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He had headaches. He had allergies. He had fatigue. He was tempted. He experienced loneliness. Whatever your temptation is, it says Jesus suffered with the temptations of humanity in all respects as we did. All respects, yet without sin. So he is a great high priest because he knows our sufferings by personal experience. He came down from heaven to earth and became human. And while on earth, he was subject to the limitations of humanity. He didn't cease becoming God, but he voluntarily laid aside some of those supernatural privileges. And so his dependency on his father was total, and he expressed that dependency by prayer and through prayer, and that's one of the reasons he prayed. Which begs the question, if God the Son needed to pray, do you think you need to pray? How much do you think you need to pray? Here's, here's the answer to that. More than you do, right? I don't know how much you do, but you, you need to do more than you do. Jesus is going to be crucified at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. It's probably nearly midnight to now. Less than 12 hours. Interesting question. If you knew you were going to die in less than 12 hours, what would you do? You would say, well, I would be praying. Good. What would you be praying about if you had 12 hours? When the disciples asked Jesus earlier to pray, he said, Lord, teach us to pray. Matthew 6. He taught them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. This prayer begins with, you know, the words, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's actually a model for the disciples to pray. It's not the Lord's Prayer, it's the disciples' prayer. The Lord doesn't pray this way. The sinless Son of God is never going to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we trespass against others, because he has no sin. So the disciples' prayer would never be spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. The actual Lord's Prayer is right here, John 17. It's the longest prayer recorded of Jesus, 26 verses, 632 words. 19 times in the Gospels, it's recorded that Jesus prayed. Almost none of those prayers do we have a record of what he said. This is by far the most lengthy recorded prayer of Christ where we know the content of what he said. You know, we know he was praying at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended on him in John 3, or Luke 3, but we don't know what he said. John, Luke 9, 29 records he was praying on the mountain when he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. We don't know what he said. He prayed to bless the little children, Matthew 19. He prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, Luke 22. The gospel recorders recorded that often Jesus got up before daylight and went out to pray, but we have no idea what he said. Before he selected his 12 disciples, they said he spent all night in prayer. I'm sure some of that was having a conversation with the Lord about selecting Judas, who was going to fulfill Scripture by betraying him, but he was going to choose him anyway because that was the will of the Father. John 17 is the 
significant exception in the sense that we have a detailed record of what Christ said. The interesting lesson for us and the profoundly compelling lesson for us is that Jesus lived in continuous communication with his Father. There was probably very few times where he wasn't in prayer. That's how much the Holy Spirit rested on him. So here's the principle. Jesus made prayer a priority, so should we. Now that's pretty obvious, right? And you already know all that. By the way, I will tell you nothing today you don't already know. I will tell you many things today you're not doing that you know. 90% of what pastors and Bible teachers do is simply remind us of what we already know. We need to be reminded. And I get reminded seven days straight before I bring it to you, right? So Jesus prayed continually while on earth, and he has not stopped praying since he went back to heaven. This prayer in John 17 marked the end of his earthly ministry, but it marked the beginning of his heavenly ministry of intercession for those who belonged to him. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he, Christ, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, underline this, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What that says is, ever since Christ was exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father, he has not stopped praying for you. By name. If you want to know how bad your life could be, if Jesus wasn't praying for you, it could be much worse than it currently is, believe me. So he is our great high priest, and he will continually pray for us until redemption is complete. And you say, well, why do I need prayer? Well, Satan accuses you of sin every day before the Father's throne. And when he accuses you of sin, he's absolutely correct. When Satan accuses you of sin before the Father, you've sinned, and you have. Who's your defense attorney? Who's your advocate? Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father is your advocate. And he intercedes with the Father on our behalf, as does the Holy Spirit. It's a great model for us to pray without ceasing, and we should go and do the same. Now, I want to outline John 17 for you. Today, we'll just deal with the first five verses. Verses 1 through 5, the persons involved in verses 1 through 5 are Jesus and his Father. Jesus and his Father are the subject of the first five verses. And the key word is glory. Glory. Jesus is praying that the Father will glorify him with the glory that they shared from all eternity past. The second section, Lord willing, next week and the week after, verses 6 through 19, the persons are Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples, and the key word there is kept. Jesus asks the Father to keep his disciples from evil, from the evil in the world, and to keep them for the privilege of seeing him in his glory when they get to heaven. And the last section, verses 20 to 26, the persons are Jesus and his church. These are people who come to faith as a result of the ministry of the 11. And the key word there is one. And Jesus is desiring that you and I, as his church throughout the ages, are in a state of oneness with him and with each other so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son. So the primary theme, as you've probably figured out here real quickly throughout all this, is the glory of God. Just in case you're wondering... That is the whole point of the universe. That is the whole point of creation is the glory and exaltation of Almighty God. 
So let's pick up the narrative in verse 1. Quote, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Here's our first principle. God's eternal plan is to glorify his Son and himself through the death and exaltation of Jesus. God's eternal plan is to glorify his Son and himself through the death and exaltation of Jesus. Let's unpack this. He says these things. He's basically saying everything I've said since chapter 13, this entire farewell discourse I've been talking to you about that's recorded in chapter 16. So after Jesus said all those things, he now lifts up his eyes toward heaven and prays. By the way, lifting up your eyes to heaven is a pretty typical Jewish posture of prayer. They believe that God dwelled in heaven, and so you should look up to heaven when you prayed, which was biblically accurate. Actually, there is no one right posture for prayer. Genesis 18 records that Abraham stood up and prayed to the Lord. Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 bowed before God and prayed. It says Jeho- um, Daniel knelt on his knees and prayed, Daniel 6. Solomon stood with his hands spread out to heaven in 1 Kings 8. Ezra 9 records that Jesus knelt on his knees. I mean, Ezra knelt on his knees with his hands spread out. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was flat on his face, prostate, when he prayed. Which is probably a pretty good attitude of prayer, but actually, practically speaking, most of us would fall asleep. It's just reality. One of my favorite postures of prayer is walking when I'm walking, I stay awake. Seriously, if you try and pray at night, fold your hand, close your eyes, it doesn't take much after a big dinner and you're gone. You're gone, gone, right? I know, I know you because I know me, right? So when praying, some people stand, sit, kneel, lay flat in their face, they walk, they talk, they fold their hands, they raise their hands. The story is told about a telephone repairman. He said the most effective prayer position he'd ever experienced was dangling 40 feet off the ground, upside down, hanging by his heels when he fell off a telephone pole and got caught in the wires. What else might you do then besides pray? Now, I can see the younger generation pulling out their cell phone and they're texting hanging upside down, you know, right? The best posture for prayer is whatever facilitates your conversation with the Father through the Son, right? Now, we know that Jesus prayed out loud because this is recorded. This is an out loud, audible prayer. And he addresses God as Father six times in this chapter. And you know, Father and Son speaks of the same nature, the same DNA. Father, Son have the same DNA. It also speaks of an intimate personal relationship like a young son and his daddy. Now, Judaism viewed God as infinite. It didn't view God as intimate. The Jews had seen the power of God in the Old Testament, the vast creative ability, and through the Exodus, the vast power of God. But they didn't have a theology at this point that God was intimate with people. And Jesus uses the words, Father, 127 times in John's gospel. John records Father. Most of them were spoken by Jesus. He's talking about his Father. So it's both intimate as well as eternal and as well as infinite. It's obviously clear that God the Father and God the Son have an intimate, loving, eternal relationship with each other. 
And he says, Father, the hour has come. Now that's the exact time determined from eternity past for Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of the world, rise from the dead, and be exalted back to heaven. Remember, five times prior in the Gospel of John, Jesus is recorded as saying, my time has not yet come. My hour's not yet come. Right? He says that five times. It's not my time. It's not my Father's time. It's not the predetermined time from eternity past for me to go to the cross. And now he says, the precise time that's been predetermined from eternity past is right now. Which tells us, nothing in God's universe happens by chance. Nothing happens by chance. He is sovereign over every star and every subatomic particle. Every star moves on God's schedule and only on God's schedule. Today, when you go home and you crack open a can of soda pop, he knows where every drop is going right now. He does. Nothing happens by chance. Now, practically speaking, that's going to be important for you to remember because you're going to have some experiences in the next 168 hours. Next seven days, some of you are going to have experiences you are going to say, God, did you just take a nap? I mean, this should not have happened. To moi. I mean, I am way too important for this to happen. How did this happen to me? Because it crossed his calendar and his desk, and he says, child, I love you, and because I love you, you're going to have this experience. And it's been on God's calendar from all eternity. So whatever news you get this week, good, bad, or indifferent, it's been on his calendar for all eternity. And you're his child, and he loves you. He never does anything that's not in your long-term best interest. So 41 times in this gospel, Jesus, John refers to Jesus as having been sent by his Father. He says in John 16, 28, earlier, I came forth from the Father, I've come into this world, I'm leaving the world, going back to the Father. So he was sent to earth for the specific purpose to die for the sins of the world. He was born to die. That's why he came. And he re Peter refers to this divine, sovereign, eternal plan of salvation that's supposed to take place at this precise time when he says in Acts 2, 23, this man, talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. So the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humans took place, and the cross is the crux of all of history. Before the creation itself, the triune God had decided that Jesus, God the Son, would come to earth and die for the sins of the world. Revelation 13.8 gives us a glimpse of that when it says, quote, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, underline this in your Bibles, the Lamb who was slain, when? From the foundation of the world, from the creation of the world. Jesus the Son, along with the Trinity, made the decision that he was going to be the redeemer of the world from eternity past. It was on God's predetermined calendar to this exact time and exact date. So anything that happens in your calendar, already been figured out. The cross of Christ was not an accident. It was an eternally planned achievement. And Jesus asks the Father now in verse 1, Father, glorify your Son that your Son would glorify you. 
And the word glorify here is a verb. It means action. The Greek word for glory is doxa. That's where we say the doxology, glory. And it means to praise, to honor, to exalt, to lift up, to magnify. And it means to display God's perfect attributes so that the world will look at who he is, marvel at who he is, and be drawn to him. And we are responsible to live lives that are accurate and reveal the character of God and the attributes of God through the power of the Holy Spirit so that the world looks at us and says, wow, your God is worth knowing. Tell me how I can know him as well. But if you live like the devil, then that doesn't sell too well. Just saying. The glorification of Jesus and the glorification of his Father is the subject of this prayer, and that's going to occur through the cross. And for us, that seems unbelievably counterintuitive. You know, when you and I look at a cross, we think of failure. We think of death. We think of suffering. We think of shame. We think of blood. We think of excruciating pain and sorrow. Jesus regarded the cross as his glory, as his triumph. Through the cross, Jesus was going to complete his Father's eternal plan to redeem us from sin and death and give people eternal life. It was a triumph. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, the cross glorifies God because it displays God's power. It displays God's wisdom, right? What's God's power for salvation? The cross. How are we saved? Through the cross. It's God's wisdom because the cross is all of God's work and none of ours. So it exalts and elevates the power and the wisdom of God. It also elevates and exalts and glorifies Jesus because it shows God's sovereignty. When Christ was crucified, he fulfilled numerous Old Testament prophecies that had been made hundreds of years before, and only a sovereign God can predict the future and then make it happen right on schedule. The cross glorified God because it reveals his justice and his holiness. You know, sin was paid for by Jesus' sacrifice. As a result of that, perfect justice was done. God is a just God. Sin had to be paid for. And it was paid for through the death of the innocent in place of the guilty, substitutionary death. God's holiness was untarnished by sin. And the cross also glorified God because it demonstrated his love and his mercy and his grace. What, is, what does Scripture say? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were at war with him, right? And made us at peace with the Father. So the cross of Christ is designed to bring honor and glory to the Father. For all eternity, you and I and millions and millions of others will praise, honor, exalt, and glorify Jesus for bearing the penalty for our sins on the cross. So Jesus was praying, Father, I want your sovereignty and your will to be done in and through me, through my loving obedience. By the way, we should so live that everything we do glorifies Almighty God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 is a pretty blanket one. You might want to write 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul says, so whether you eat, and we're all going to eat, or drink, and if you don't drink in 72 hours, you're dead, so you will drink, or whatever you do, the blanket, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. 
That means your attitude, your motivation is, Lord, I want to honor you by this activity, whatever it is. I want to honor you by this thought. I want to honor you by this behavior. Verse 2. Even as you gave him, the Son, authority over all flesh, that to all you whom you gave him, he may give eternal life. Here's the principle. Jesus glorified his Father by giving eternal life to everyone whom the Father chose and gave to him. Jesus glorified his Father by giving eternal life to everyone whom the Father chose and gave to him. Now, Jesus is the life giver. He is the only one who gives life because he himself is life, the origin of life. God is a giving God. The word give occurs in this chapter 17 times. You and I would not be here if God was not a giving God. Now, God the Father gave his Son authority over the entire human race and over all of creation. Matthew 28, 20, 28 18 says what? Hint, it doesn't say some authority, does it? It says, all authority has been given to me where? What's the scope? In heaven and on earth, unlimited. Now, it's interesting. You look at Jesus, even in the flesh, he displayed divine authority. He taught with authority. He forgave with authority. He exercised authority over the natural and the supernatural realms. What? He stopped storms, created food, healed the sick, raised the dead, exercised demons. The people were astonished at this authority in the flesh, which is going to be magnified when he rises from the dead. He has authority to judge all the earth. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, and as such, every soul belongs to him. The world hates Ezekiel 18.3 because it says we are creatures who are dependent and owned by our creator. Quote, as I live, declares the Lord God, verse 4, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. Here's the universal dictum. The soul who sins will die. Who all is included in that? Everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone deserves to die, but everyone has sinned. And yet, from eternity past, God in his mercy and his grace and his love chose some to be saved. Ephesians 1.4. Just as he, the Father, chose us, believers, in him, Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. Before creation that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as son through Jesus Christ to himself. So Jesus uses this interesting phrase, all you have given me, all those you have given me, seven times in this chapter. What it's saying is that in eternity past, the Father elected those who were to be saved and gave them to Jesus Christ so he could save them through his sacrificial death on the cross. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that of all those he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. You want assurance that you are going to heaven? You are not going to heaven because you can keep your salvation. You didn't earn it in the first place. You're going to heaven because Jesus Christ says, I don't lose anybody I save. I don't lose anybody. No one's going to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one comes to, the God, no one comes to Jesus without the Father drawing them. 
God creates every soul, the Father chooses every soul, the Father gives the souls of people that he is elected to save for the Son, the Son receives them, the Son saves them, the Son preserves them, and Jesus said, I'm going to raise them up on the last day to eternal life. I don't lose anyone. Verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here's the principle. Eternal life is the experiential, personal knowledge of the only true God, accessed only through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Eternal life is the experiential, personal knowledge of the only true God, accessed only through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's unpack this. There's an enormous amount of weight in here. Eternal life literally in the Greek translates age-abiding life. When we think of eternity, we're stuck in time, past, present, and future. So when we think eternity, we just think, man, that's a whole bunch of time, right? And we all live with time's arrow. You know, the past is on the left, and there's this arrow, and it goes all the way to the right. I guess in your case, it'd start over here, and you go back this way, right? And that arrow goes forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, eternal life is much more than just endless quantity of time. It's quality of existence. It is a different quality of existence. It's more than time because every human being has a living soul that lives forever. Everyone's immortal. Everyone lives forever. The location where you spend eternity can be vastly different. You're either with God in heaven or separated from God in hell, but everyone lives forever. So eternal life is not just conscious existence that lasts forever. It's knowing God, both the Father and the Son. Knowing God is more than just the way to life. It's the definition of life. God is the source of life. Jesus himself said, I am life, right? John 1 says, in him is life. He's the only independent source of life, the Father and the Son. It's the very definition of life. And Jesus gives life to everyone that has life. What does it say? If anyone's in Christ, he or she is a new creature, new creature, new life, new. It's the divine life operating in us. We become new creatures. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life, and it might be a really drag. Is that what he says? He said, I come that they may have life, and they might have it abundantly. He's talking about a new quality of life, an eternal quality of life. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming to live within you, and God himself, life itself, lives inside you. Now, Jesus says there's only one true God, the creator, supreme ruler of the universe. Knowing God goes far beyond knowing about God. You can know about God. You look at his creation. You can read his Bible, etc. The word knowing here means an experiential, intimate, relational knowledge of God. You know, in the old King James Version, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife. They're talking about sexual marital intercourse, right? It's an intimate, experiential, relational oneness. It is a knowing not just by what you know about somebody, but having an intimate relationship with them. And in Jeremiah 31, God says, someday, new covenant, 
Every person on the planet will know me personally, one-to-one. You won't just know about me. During the millennium, during salvation, everyone's going to know me, and I'm going to have a personal relationship with billions of people. Face-to-face, one-to-one, I know them, and they know me. And the only way to know God is through who? His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you have enough to work on for the next week. I know I do. We love you all. I love you all. Thank you for coming. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.